0: Welcome to the A Catholic Life Podcast. I am Matthew, the author of A Catholic Life, welcoming you to Episode 27 of the A Catholic Life Podcast. In today's episode, published for the 12th Sunday after Pentecost, I address the following two topics. First, the upcoming feast days this week, including mention of the Octave of the Assumption, as well as one of the forgotten Vigils of the Apostles coming up this week— Secondly, the controversy of honoring so-called Coptic saints. What is a Catholic, a true traditional Catholic to do regarding this modern controversy? But before we delve into these issues, I'd like to stop and thank the sponsor for today's episode. This episode is proudly sponsored by CatechismClass.com. CatechismClass.com is the leader in online Catholic faith formation courses for everyone, offering everything from online children's K-12 through education programs to adult continuing education courses for those Catholics who want to better learn the faith, along with RCA classes, marriage preparation programs, baptism preparation classes for parents and godparents, confirmation preparation classes, quinceañera prep, catechist training, and so much more. It's never too late to study the fullness of the Catholic faith and to immerse yourself in the Church's traditions and the Church's uh, traditional theology, which unfortunately is not widely taught today from the pulpit. CatechismClass.com is the gold standard for Authentic Catholic Faith Formation Online. What does the Catholic Church actually teach? You'll find that and so much more in CatechismClass.com. Please check them out today. On to the first part, though, of this episode. I'd like to go over some of the upcoming feast days this week, as I have been prone to do in the past um, episodes, really, since this show has started. Now today, while it is a Sunday... It is uh, the 12th Sunday after Pentecost. In years where an August 20th, today's date, does not fall on a Sunday, it is celebrated as the feast of St. Bernard. Now, St. Bernard was the famous abbot and doctor of the church who was canonized only 21 years after his death. He's referred to as the second founder of the Cistercians, the apostle of the Crusades, the miracle worker, the reconciler of kings, the leader of peoples, and the counselor of popes. And in the year 1830, he was given the title of Doctor of the Church by Pope Pius the Eighth. Now, St. Bernard of Clairvaux was born in the year 1090, the third son of a noble family. At an early age, he was sent to college, and there he studied the Holy Scriptures and theology. At the young age of 22, he entered the monastery where the Cistercian, where the Cistercian order began, and following the death of his mother and fearing the ways of the world, he convinced 25 other youth in the noble class, as well as four of his brothers, to follow him. His father and a fifth brother actually later joined him. St. Stephen, the abbot of the monastery, after seeing the great progress of St. Bernard in spiritual life, sent him with 12 monks to found a new monastery. St. Bernard would found the famous Abbey of Clairvaux and become abbot in the year 1115. He founded numerous other monasteries as well, and he dedicated his work De Conditionare to his disciple Bernard of Pisa, who later became Pope Eugene II. Now Pope Eugene III later asked Saint Bernard to preach the Second Crusade, so St. Bernard traveled throughout France and Germany preaching. After the failure of the Crusade, some people turned on St. Bernard, and St. Bernard countered by saying that the knights failed because of their sinfulness, and that is why the Crusade failed, because the Crusaders did not rely on God, but trusted in their ourselves and ultimately gave in to sin. Ultimately, St. Bernard's influence on the princes, clergy, and the people of his day, though, were remarkable. He was an advisor to King St. Louis the Fat and King Louis the Young, Saint Bernard attended the Second Lateran Council and fought Albigensianism, and he helped to end the schism of the anti-pope, Anacletus II. He was endowed with the gift of miracles, and died on the, the day of August 20th, 1153. He was the first Cistercian monk placed on the calendar of saints, and as mentioned, he was canonized only twenty-one years after his death by Pope Alexander III, and in 1830, Pope Pius VIII declared him a doctor of the Church. St. Bernard is certainly well-known today in Catholic circles. If you say St. Bernard, his story is often well-known, and for good reason. Now, the following day, August 21st, is the feast of St. Jane Francis de Chantal, the widow who founded the Order of the Visitation after the death of her husband. Now, even when it seems that our lives are over in old age and after disasters, God can use our situation to really bring about a manifold amount of graces. Now, her charity was so great, she even served as godmother for the son of a man who killed her own husband. St. Jane Francis de Chantal also shows us the importance of befriending holy people. In the year 1604, she met St. Francis de Sales and soon placed herself under his direction. By the advice of this holy bishop, she determined to abandon the world, having made satisfaction... ...for her children and provisions for them, and her son being then 15 years of age. Now she laid the foundation of a new order, of the Visitation, on Trinity Sunday in the year 1610, and a number of apostles soon increased. For many years she suffered great interior trials with great resignation, while she labored to extend her order and promote the glory of God. Now St. Francis de Sales preceded her in death, he died in the year 1622, but she survived him nearly 20 more years... During the remainder of her life, she continued to direct her religious in the spirit with which St. Francis de Sales had endued her, and in 1638, she went to Turin to found a convent. Soon after, the Queen of France invited her to Paris, and she died at that convent on December thirteenth, sixteen 1641, at the age of 62. All of this she accomplished after a very tragic incident in her life. Now, at the age of 20, she married Baron de Chantal of, the fa- of a very famous family there, an officer in the army of Henry the Fourth. Now, her wedded life was happy, but that was soon to change when the Baron was killed by an accident while hunting, and he expired in the arms of her, his, his distraught wife, who was left a widow at the age of only 28 with one little son and three daughters. And that is when she ultimately gave herself to God and went on to practice religion to a much greater extent, ultimately going on to leave the world and found uh, an order of nuns with the permission of her spiritual director, really ensuring that her children were well provided for before she did so, but going on to accomplish great things for charity. And as mentioned, her charity was so great, she served as the godmother of the son of the man who unfortunately killed her own husband. So we can learn much from the charity with St. Jane Frances de Chantal, uh, you know, as she lived. What's quite interesting is, unlike St. Bernard, whose story is quite well known— like a lot of Saint St. Jean Francis de Chantal has really fallen by the wayside since Vatican II, and her story is no longer really well known. So this is some saying we can really learn from. Now the next day um, is actually the octave day of the Assumption. Now, as I've mentioned before, the, the Assumption was previously celebrated with an octave until the unfortunate changes under Pope Pius XII, where he abolished virtually all octaves, And this particular day, the octave day of the Assumption, is traditionally the Feast of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Now, the liturgical worship through which we give due honor to the Immaculate Heart of Mary uh, was first approved by the Apostolic See in the beginning of the 19th century, when Pope Pius VII instituted the Feast of the Most Pure Heart of the Virgin Mary, to be piously and reverently celebrated by all the dioceses and all religious families who asked for it. Afterwards, Pope Pius Ninth added an office and a proper Mass to it, but an ardent desire and longing which has really arisen in the 17th century grew day by day, as the story goes, and namely the same feast, given greater solemnity, might be spread to the whole church was the desire of many. So in the year, relatively recently, in 1942, Pope Pius Twelfth acceded to this wish and during the terrible war that we know as world war ii which ravaged almost the entire known world he really trying to pity the infinite hardships of men and because of his devotion and confidence in our heavenly mother in solemn supplication entrusted the entire human race to her most generous heart and in honor of the same immaculate heart he ordered a feast to be kept forever with his proper office and mass and that is celebrated today that is August 22nd, the day of the octave of the Assumption. It is also a really ideal day for us to pray the Act of Reparation to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. If you go online and search Act of Reparation to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, print that out and really make an effort to pray that this coming Tuesday, August 22nd. August 23rd is the Feast of St. Uh, Philip Bazzini. He was a Servite Cardinal and a preacher. He lived in the 1200s. But in addition, something I'd like to say is that same day, in addition to being the feast day of St. Philip Bazzini, is the commemoration of the vigil of St. Bartholomew. Now, we would do very well to continue to observe these vigils throughout the year, even though the mainstream calendar no longer keeps them. Now, the Catholic Encyclopedia writing of this day says, The Feasts of the Apostles are spread throughout the liturgical cycle, as if to show that the Apostles are the foundation in which the whole Church rests. St. Bartholomew is the sixth in the list of twelve as given by the evangelists. Like the other apostles, he learned the secrets of the divine law and made them known to the world, confirming them by his martyrdom. On this day, the liturgy prepares us for his feast day tomorrow. Now, something I would like to further add is if you go to the Catholic Encyclopedia and you look at the article, Eve of a Feast, it's actually a very interesting article talking about uh, the practice of vigils as well as fasting, which is in uh, connection with many of them. And what's interesting is there was a synod, a local one in the year uh, 932, which actually connects a fast with every vigil. And uh, the article goes on to say that the very fact that the people were not permitted to eat or drink, before the services of the vigil, vespers and matin were ended after midnight, explains the excesses of which the councils and the writers speak. So the article goes on to talk about there's a wide variety of vigils, and then over time, some of them became practiced as fasting days, some of them did not. But what's important to note is, one, all of the feast days of the apostles around this period of time in in the 900s were holy days of obligation. And in fact, they would remain on the universal calendars, holy days for centuries. Two, all of the um, feasts of the apostles were preceded with a vigil, except for those celebrated during a period of uh, of joy, like during Paschal tide, or, for instance, during Christmas tide. Uh, three even though there has been a uh, change continually over the centuries in the weakening of fasting, if we go back beforehand and apply the spirituality of the fast that occurred always before the feast, we can voluntarily observe this coming Wednesday, the vigil of St. Bartholomew, as a fasting day to prepare for his feast day. And his feast day is August 24th, as mentioned, the following day. Now, the day after that is the feast day of St. Louis IX, the saintly king of France who did so much for the Church. In fact, the holy crown of thorns of Jesus Christ, the relic that rested on our blessed Lord's head, was really bought by King St. Louis and was preserved for a very long time in a reliquary in Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. And what's interesting is St. Louis the Ninth spent an insane amount of money, really, at the time in order to ransom that and to bring that back. And he did so much to further the faith and really um, did so much to stamp out heresy, uh, as well as the heirs of Judaism. Now, for instance, he ordered at the urging of Pope Gregory IX the burning in Paris in the year 1243 of some 12,000 manuscript copies of the Talmud and other Jewish books. And as mentioned before in articles I've written, the Talmud was a Jewish text written after the destruction of the temple, really meant to attack our Lord, calling him a sorcerer calling him uh, actually a great number of different blasphemies. It, It is a text which no one should ever allow to be published. So he did much to expunge these kind of works that attack our Lord and really showed us that you can be a faithful Catholic and a ruler. He's a true model that we should pray to for our leaders today in the world, that they would follow his example and finally, August the 26th is the Feast of Pope St. Uh, Zephyrinus, who reigned as the Vicar of Christ from the year 199 to 217. Now that's a brief overview of the upcoming feast this week. I think it's important that we live liturgically, and it's really important for us, therefore, to call to mind these saints and to have different ways we can honor them, have different intentions in mind. So, for instance, the Feast of St. Louis, we might really be praying for uh the people of Missouri, the people of the city of St. Louis, as well as the people of France, as well as against the heirs uh of the the modern Jewish religion that really attacks our Lord. But in addition to that, we might also pray different intentions throughout the week. We have different fast days as well, different feast days, if we truly uh, immerse ourselves in the Church's traditional liturgy. But the second topic I'd like to discuss briefly, and please read the link in the show notes to more information, is my article on the so-called Coptic Orthodox Saints. Now, um, the Coptic Church— is is actually not really um, often understood, because a lot of people, when they think of Coptics, think of the Orthodox, and that's not really true. Now, the so-called Coptic Church really broke off from the Catholic Church at the time when Orthodoxy did not exist. Now, there was a monk from Constantinople who advanced the heresy uh, which is called monophytism. Now, it's a heresy that claims that Jesus Christ was a joining of the Godhead with the human person of Jesus, which occurred at the Incarnation. This was a reaction against Nestorianism, which emphasizes Jesus' two natures to the point where he's basically two persons— In contrast, monophytism held that the divinity of Christ essentially dominated his human nature so that Jesus was only one person, he who effectively only had one nature, the divine nature. Therefore, he has no human nature whatsoever. Now, there was a breaking away and an excommunication that occurred really due to the Council of Chalcedon because the Coptics rejected the Council of Chalcedon, which uh, clearly and definitively taught that our Lord Jesus Christ is one divine person with two complete natures, a human nature and a divine nature united in Him. That was officially um dogmatically decreed in the year 451 and the Coptics rejected it. Now, the Coptics currently comprise Egypt's largest minority population since the majority is Muslim and they're the largest population of Christians in the Middle East. Now, by the 20th century, the larger body of the ethnic Egyptian Christians began to call themselves Coptic Orthodox in order to distinguish themselves from both Coptic Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, because over time there have been some of these Coptics who have converted and are are now reunited with the Roman Catholic Church and have given up this heresy. But for those who call themselves so-called Coptic Orthodox, these Coptics who who follow this um uh heresy back from the year 451, they actually have a leader who calls himself a pope as well. So the article goes into more information, but the controversy uh, stems because— of what occurred in 2015. As most people would remember, there were 21 of these Coptics who were brutally uh, massacred by ISIS, and many of them did so because they refused uh, to convert to Islam. Now, the Coptic Orthodox Church calls them martyrs and celebrates their feast day on February 25th, and really in an unprecedented move on May May 11th of 2023, Pope Francis, in an audience with their leader, uh, stated that their names would be inserted into the Catholic Church's Roman martyrology as a sign of spiritual communion that so-called unites both these churches. Now, the controversy uh, stems because, one, it is improper to call them martyrs. As my article talks about, there's actually three conditions that must be met for someone to be a martyr. One, one must suffer a corporal death. Two, one must suffer this hatred, this death in hatred of the Christian faith. And three, one must accept death voluntarily. Now, since the Christian faith is synonymous with the Catholic faith and cannot admit those who are heretics, these individuals cannot truly be called martyrs by a Catholic. Of course, I also go on to talk about the importance of there is no salvation outside the church. The words of Pope Eugene IV, published in Cantate Dominum in the year 1441, are dogmatic. And the Council of Florence dogmatically taught as well that there is absolutely no salvation outside of the Catholic Church, stating in part, quote, No one, let his almsgiving be as great as it may be. No one, even if he pour out his blood for the name of Christ, can be saved unless he remain within the bosom and the unity of the Catholic Church, end quote. Hence, it is contrary to Catholic doctrine to honor a saint, one who is separated from Catholic unity. Not only the Coptic Orthodox, but the Eastern Orthodox must not be honored in the Church's liturgy. And the Eastern Orthodox has unfortunately begun to fall into heresy in some respects, especially as it concerns remarriage, so-called rebaptism, the promoting of contraception, the denial of uh, the, the Holy Ghost proceeding from the Father and the Son, and the list could go on. But I also mention it's really important to understand the distinction between formal and material heresy. Um, we can nevertheless still hope, therefore, for the salvation of these 21 men who gave their lives, even if we should not honor them liturgically, and even though we should call upon the reversal of their inclusion in the martyrology. So how can this be? How can we hope that they are actually in heaven, but be very clear that they should not be honored as saints. And this concerns a crucial definition of formal versus material heresy. That's something that a lot of people don't go into a lot of detail, but there's clearly a definition um, that people need uh, to be taught. So in the Catholic Church, heresy has a very specific meaning. Anyone who, after receiving baptism, Uh, pernaciously denies or doubts any of the truths that must be believed with divine and Catholic faith is considered a heretic. Now, there's four elements to be verified to constitute formal heresy. Uh, Previous valid baptism is one, uh, external profession of still being a Christian, uh, would be another or otherwise a person would be an apostate three outright denial or positive doubt regarding a truth of the catholic church which has actually been proposed as revealed by god and four, the disbelief must be morally culpable where a nominal christian refuses to accept what he knows is doctrinally imperative uh that if you have those four that is formal heresy Objectively, therefore, to become a heretic in the strict canonical sense and to be excommunicated from the faithful, one must deny or question a truth that is taught not merely by the authority of the Church, but on the Word of God and revealed in the Scriptures. Subjectively, a person must recognize his ob- obligation to believe. If he acts in good faith, though, as with most persons brought up in non-Catholic surrounding, the heresy is only material and implies neither guilt nor sin against faith. So that's the key distinction. Many of these so-called martyrs might have not even known that what they believed was opposed to divinely revealed dogma, especially the man who converted in the spot and said, I want to side with them. I want to follow the God that they claim to serve and thus gave his life. Thus, the Catholic bishop of Giza, Italy said, Quote, the men entrusted themselves to the one who would soon receive them. If we can discuss the use of the term of martyr applied to these 21 victims, we can hope with the bishop that they too will be united to the one who they ultimately sought to serve, hoping that they just fell into material heresy and not formal heresy. I don't think this is a topic that gets a lot of discussion uh, amongst uh, most Catholics, If it's covered at all, it's usually in very high-level sort of theology. I think it's really important. That's why I spent a little bit more time on today's episode to go over it. But I do hope if you're interested in learning more regarding this controversy, what's the difference between formal and material heresy, how it applies to the Coptics, why some Coptics came back to Catholic unity, and what the differences really are in the Coptic Church, I invite you to check out the link for more information. Above all, though, thank you for listening to this episode. May God grant you a most blessed week, and let us all strive for greater holiness this and every week. Ad maiorem Dei Glorium. <speaking in Spanish>